Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. Costa Rica is one of the most efficient and healthy countries in the world. They've been able to triple their economic growth while recovering 1.1 million hectares of degraded land, protecting their watersheds, operating on 100% renewable energy, doubling the projected forest area of the country, and advancing a robust ecotourism industry. It's no wonder that Costa Rica then ranks high on the happiness, the air quality, and life quality indices. What's their secret? According to Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, Environment and Energy Minister for Costa Rica, intergenerational investment is key. It's key in protecting nature, which stems from a deep cultural understanding of the value of nature to the economic and ecological well-being of the country and its people. How do we then incentivize other countries and leaders to learn from Costa Rica's success? Indeed, this is the central question. Currently, the world invests 0.008% of our global GDP in the protection of nature. Yet, nature has the potential to decarbonize our world and reduce climate stress by 30%, while also providing up to $123 trillion of U.S. value in nature services. The opportunity to invest in nature is a win-win solution for personal, political, and planetary health. It's important to realize that our current economic decisions are destroying the life support system of the planet, so it's time to invest in nature. Let's hear what Carlos has to share with us on how to do that in ways that benefit all. This is Catherine Cunningham with Natural Intelligence Media here at the UN Summit with Carlos Manuel Rodriguez who is the Environment and Energy Minister of Costa Rica. Welcome. How are you? I'm fabulous. This has been an incredible week, to be honest. I know um, the most exciting news for me is that we launched the new Global Deal for Nature, and Costa Rica was quite a, an important player in that, in that arena. So I thought maybe we'd just, we just start out by sharing with our audience what this Global Deal for Nature is and what its aims are for the future. Sure. sure. I'm also very, very happy about uh, the many different outcomes out of this uh, climate week. And indeed, uh, in a very simplistic manner, I will say that uh, nature was the big winner during this week. And let me give you a, a little bit of a background of why I perceive it as such. For the last year, we've been receiving reports by the scientific community on climate and biodiversity loss. Uh, whereby what uh, they're telling us is, yes, we got a, a climate change issue and we're losing biodiversity like probably never before. But people have come to realize that the biggest problem is not climate or loss of biodiversity. We humans are really affecting the life-supporting system of, of the planet. This means that we are messing around with nature. And most importantly, we're messing around with modern nature. And modern nature can be very mean with humans if we don't understand the need to change and the need to really generate a balance within our consumption and production patterns with the life-supporting systems of the planet. Based on that understanding, we've been working for the last many, many months on trying to position nature as a cost-effective way to deal with climate change, not just in climate mitigation but as well as in climate adaptation. We all recognize the important role that nature plays in the climate agenda, but unfortunately, throughout the years, it has a very low profile. Mm -hmm. Most of the climate agenda has been 
captured, if I can say so, by the energy sector, which is, yeah, of course, the, the biggest challenge that the planet has in terms of climate change. But nature-based solutions are 30% of the climate solution, and we need to level up the processes by which we mobilize resources, we develop uh, technologies, we do collaboration, we design tools. We need to level up what we do in terms of uh, shifting towards a new energy paradigm based on renewable energies as with uh, dealing with uh, nature. Mm -hmm. And in this respect, this summit was keen on this very specific aspect because, and I add another element into this, which was also citizens of this planet come to realize that deforestation, particularly tropical deforestation, continues to be very high. The forest fires in the Amazon, the fires in the um, boreal forests of Alaska, the forest fires in the temperate forests of uh, Russia really caught the attention of most citizens of this planet, and they come to realize that we're destroying nature, which is one of the most important elements. So it, it is great, and we need to really understand. You know, uh, like six months ago, I, I was having dinner at home with my kids and my wife, and we were, you know, having a philosophical discussion about the future of my kids and, and the impacts of climate change. So I was updating my kids about, you know, the big, big challenges that they will be confronting in the next decades. And my youngest daughter said, don't worry, Father, you shouldn't be worrying about that because a scientist is going to come with a machine that will upset all that carbon of the atmosphere and we will be safe. And you know what I said? I said, that machine already exists. It's called a tree. <laughs> we already have the machine that can solve our climate crisis, which is trees and forests. It is a self-sustaining machine. It doesn't need energy, it's low cost, and it's been here with us for 400 million years. Well, that's kind of the connection of dots that everybody needs to do. There won't be a scientist inventing a machine. Mother Nature invented a machine many, many years ago that now humans will need to understand how do we use it in any way that can mitigate climate change. Right. So that conversation I had with my kids is what we need to explain everybody else's. And I think that what we did during this climate summit was positioning nature as such. Now, I think we got an, an open field where we, ministers and scientists and academics, need to begin um, presenting the very concrete ideas in respect to what we call nature-based solutions. So a nature-based solution is a tree, and it's essentially the most incredible technology that Mother Nature has invented because it has this capacity to draw down the carbon. What are some other, let's say, solutions that a tree has for us? Thoughts, well, when I talk about tree, I'm, I'm talking about nature in a broad manner mm -hmm. because not just trees, it's uh, wetlands, it's uh, grasslands, it's mangroves, it's coral reefs, it's sea grasses. I mean, I'm talking about natural ecosystems, all of nature. And yes, trees is probably what uh, is more evident and can be easily understood. But nature does play this very important role. 
So if we are really committed towards protecting, uh, making more resilient this planet, we need to really heavily invest in nature conservation. Unfortunately, we invest more resources that generate environmental damage to nature than what we invest in protecting nature. We, we got a, you know, a very, very clear crisis of the economic system and the development model, whereby, just to give an example, we invest uh, 140 more times in activities, particularly agriculture, that generates deforestation than what we invest in forest conservation. We give oil uh, subsidies to the energy sector 1,000 times higher than what we invest in climate mitigation. So we got a huge problem in terms of how we mobilize resources and a huge problem on how we do smart investment. We cannot continue investing at the global level in activities that destroy nature because we are, oh. you know, uh, limiting our capacities to really mitigate climate change in, in a time period where we can, you know, match uh, the scientific expectations. Right. So it's not the technology, it's not that the nature-based solutions don't exist. It's really about political will and, right. let's say, business opportunities. So as a country, you have been on the forefront of really shifting that mentality from this right to develop to this right to protect nature. How have you been so effective? Okay. How I mean, and, and this, this really goes back to your time when you were vice president of the International Policy mm -hmm. for Conservation International, and then even before that, again, the environmental minister in Costa Rica with your payments for ecological services, so PBS, your ability to you know, motivate people to put aside national parks, marine sanctuaries. How were you able to do yeah. so much work? You're, you're hitting the nail. Very good question. Yes, we got the resources at the global level, and we got the technology to really solve all of our environmental problems. Just to give you an idea, in terms of resources, financial resources, annually all countries of this planet invest 0.008% of the global GDP in nature conservation. That's incredible. Nothing. Nothing. That's nothing. We invest around $52 billion in nature conservation, all countries from the north, south, east, and west, $52 billion. You know how much we humans spend in consuming ice creams? $57 billion. So we humans, we invest more money in consuming ice cream than in protecting nature. So we got an issue there. So why if we got the money, there is no mobilization? Well, for me, it's very simple, and I want to try to answer your question, because this is what we've been trying to do in Costa Rica. So two things are important. One is nature conservation is not yet being positioned in those social human values and principles. That's very important, as it is with human rights, as it is with the respect of life, as it is with respect to property and some other principles, mm -hmm. which are very important, that everybody agrees upon. I think that the Declaration of Human Rights is a good example of that. Still, the rights of the future generation is not positioned anywhere else, and if it's position. It's in a few countries in a very abstract matter. So we need to really, and this is why I love so much this movement of the young kids. We are asking adults to take a bold action. So we need to position those principles in our uh, scale of values and, mm -hmm. and principles. That's one thing. The other thing we need to understand that uh, politicians 
take their political decision based on the best ec economic information. If the economic system doesn't feed them with good data about trade-offs in terms of development and environmental impacts, the GDP definition process or the national accounting process, which are two basic economic tools used by governments to take decisions and to assess growth are unable to fully internalize deforestation, the loss of our fish stocks, uh, uh, CO2 emission into the atmosphere, they will continue business as usual. We want a shift from business as usual towards a new development paradigm. If we want to do that, it's a combination of changing the economic system and how we set the goals, the social goals, and the values. Social goals at this point are dominated by economic criteria. You assess success in a nation based on economic data and principles. Let me ask you a question. Which economy is more efficient, the American or the Costa Rican? Oh, I know it's the Costa Rican. It is the economy. Costa Rican, definitely, yes. You know what? Even though the size of the economy of the U.S. is a few trillions higher mm -hmm. than the Costa Rican, the average life expectancy of the Costa Rican is higher than the American average. The life satisfaction of a Costa Rican is higher than the average American. And the Costa Rican's footprint, environmental footprint per capita, is way lower than any American. Mm -hmm. So I strongly believe that our economic system or our economy is more efficient. Nevertheless, also healthier. And so it's interesting to your point, I've actually done quite a bit of research on this myself personally. The air quality in Costa Rica is one of the highest air yes, qualities yes. in the world. And that's because yeah. you've protected your yeah. natural capital. Yeah, that's totally correct. And so the that's values of the country being associated not just with economic health, but with ecological health also seems to contribute to personal health. And like you said, well-being and happiness. Yeah. Yes, in Costa Rica, we're quite spoiled. Anybody in Costa Rica is used to drink water from the tap. We are not used to go to a foreign country and not to be able to drink for the tap from the house or the hotel. As a matter of fact, when I've been traveling in the developing countries and they had told me, if you take a shower, please take it with your mouth closed because you can get sick. In Costa Rica, 99% of the people, no matter where you live, can drink directly from the tap. And this is something which is the product of many, many decades of good, smart investment, and this is just water. The same with our issue. Of course, we got our big pending environmental problems, and pollution is one of them, uh, particularly water and solid waste pollution. And this is so because in Costa Rica, we concentrate ourselves a lot to resolve uh, all of our environmental problems, which were located in the past in rural areas, deforestation, loss of biodiversity, erosion of soils, etc., etc., and we create the policies, the institution, and did the investment to do well, and we did it very well. But we were not able to really catch up with the changes, and all of a sudden Costa Rica turned out to be a more urban society than a rural society. So that meant that our environmental problems went from the rural all the way to the urban areas, and we didn't invest in the proper policies, in the proper institutions, and we are just struggling to deal with, you know, transportation issues, pollution issues, lack of green areas. Just in, now in, you're starting yeah, to deal with this. Now we're really putting mm. attention to that because, you know, it's affecting what we have done in the past and it's affecting, you know, the quality of the life of Costa Rica. Mm. 
So the decarbonization plan that we have um, and which was launched uh, early this year that aims to see remission by 2050 is concentrating in some of those areas that will help us improve the living condition in, in urban areas. So, for example, we want to phase out as soon as possible all fossil fuels, and we can aim to this because we produce 100% of our electricity with renewable sources. By the way, the world average is 23. Costa Rica is already 100%. So having 100% renewable clean energy means that we can electrify the transportation sector and phase out fossil fuels. That means that the air quality will increase dramatically. That means that you know, moving towards electric mobility is a great opportunity for us because we can be able to, to change the transportation paradigm. I mean, I, I strongly believe that in 10 years, it won't make any sense to own a car in Costa Rica because there are many other options. And those options are more energy efficient, are totally aligned with a new mobility paradigm. And these are the things that we see. And yeah, I've been criticizing Costa Rica that I'm, you know, a dreamer. But let me tell you, when I was a kid and we were confronting deforestation and logging and all those things, they call us uh, dreamers. And we were able to achieve it. I don't have any doubt that my kids will be fishing and swimming in the same rivers of the urban areas that my grandfather did. I don't have any doubt that my kids' carbon footprint will be the same as my grandfather's carbon footprint in the 1950s. So this is what we are aiming and aspiring, and this is because we've been able to really understand what are the one, what are the drivers, and two, how do we address a change that means at the same time that it's aiming for sustainability standards, aims for a leap forward in terms of human development. Beautiful. Linking our personal values, our health values, our communal, social, environmental values to the value, to the economic value of our countries. I heard also that Costa Rica is constantly looking to, you know, up the game to constantly figure out ways in order to keep at this 100% renewable goal, decarbonize 100% by 2050. Does this really stem from sort of a cultural ethic which just permeates your country? Because I, I remember at the World Economic Forum listening to your president, Carlos Alvarado Casada, say, the people understand that when the top predator, the jaguar, is not healthy, that the rest of the ecosystem isn't healthy. And I wonder if it's really this, this mentality of a sense of when I breathe in and out, I'm breathing in and out the air from the tropical forests that I protect, I value the biodiversity, you know, the richness of the place I live. I expect that I'm going to be able to drink clean water in, in my home. Um, I expect that I'm going to be able to, you know, have my kids feel safe to play in the rivers and, and the mm -hmm. lakes. I mean, is this just an ethic that your society has that we can somehow, that you're continuing to reinforce as environmental mm -hmm. minister and that you can potentially export to other countries? Well, I think it's a, well, that's a very tough question, but I, I think it's a combination of, uh, of the economic rationale, whereby in Costa Rica protecting nature makes a lot of economic sense. That's why we don't destroy our forests, because people are being paid for carbon services and tourism is becoming a huge positive incentive with uh, the, you know, the investment that our great-grandfathers and grandfathers has done in um, education and healthcare. 
So those conditions are, you know, the enabling conditions that has helped us to really concentrate to position nature as a driver for growth, as a driver for stability, and um, we understand it very clearly. So President Alvarado has been very clear saying that he, as a young president, understand the intergenerational responsibility in the same way that his grandfather was part of the generation that abolished the army, established the civil rights movement, that creating the social care system. His generation, President Alvarado's generation, is the one who's doing the decarbonization process. When we abolished the army in 1949, unfortunately, we never generated global peace. But Costa Rica was able to do a social leap forward that helped us achieve many, many goals of our, in terms of human development. The decarbonization process and the movement towards a you know, more efficient, decentralized economy and model based on the fourth industrial revolution principles is something that's going to give us more jobs, more opportunity, and better living conditions for Costa Rica. So he makes an analogy of the, his grandfather's decision to abolish the army to what he's doing right now, particularly around uh, the decarbonization plan. Brilliant. I mean, and this should be... Uh you know, an inspiring narrative for all other country presidents that they could see that, you know, we really are then in this point of transformation in our society where we have an opportunity to protect our natural assets and and value them appropriately. What is it, like the nature-based services are something on the order of delivering $123 trillion of value economically a year? in obviously water security and you know avoided but, but uh, I don't want costs you and those people who are listening to us to get me wrong because this kind of changes has probably was the same case when our grandfather abolished the army has a lot of resistance mm-hmm. a lot of resistance by economic sectors a lot of resistance by those who have doubts or lack of understanding on what are the global threats in terms of climate change and loss of biodiversity, mm-hmm. and, and those who doesn't trust in, in governments. But how then can we sort of influence through education or, or bring okay. those sorts of... So these are, you know, political issues. challenges, very clear political challenges. And probably the most important one is many politicians and interest groups in Costa Rica says the decarbonization plan is beautiful, it's very interesting, it's progressive, but first, let's fix the economy. Let's generate more jobs, let's generate growth. That's the reality. That's reality. That's what we are confronted on a, on a daily basis. So my response to that is, you need to open your eyes and understand that in part, most of the economic problems is the failure of the economic system that we want to change with the decarbonization plan. The process to electrify transportation sector will generate opportunities, will generate jobs, will generate new economic dynamic, and will help us right. overcome. We won't be able to prosper in terms of generating more jobs and increasing our economy with business as usual. Right. You know, we got these kind of very complicated debates. Right. So economic growth and opportunities for people mm-hmm. is consistent with mm-hmm. also a decarbonization yeah. plan to yeah. provide yeah. ecological correct. health That's for the planet. That's correct. Yes. There is no discrepancy no. between 
It's a fabulous narrative. I can't wait to see how our you're, you're very kind. Thank you. Our initiatives play out, and really appreciate your leadership. Leadership of your country, your your Thank star you, in the constellation uh -huh. of countries present. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. Have a beautiful day.